1: Hi, I'm uh, Aaron Weinacht, and I'm here with Professor Nikolai kerman to talk about his new book about Russian eugenics. It's titled uh, With and Without Galton. Uh, So thanks for being with us, Professor. Thank thank you for inviting me. Uh, You think you could start us off by telling us a bit uh, about of uh, your academic background, where you went to school, how you got into the history of science and so on? Um,
2: sure. Uh, my first training was as a biologist. Um, I started off at a university in the south of Russia, in rostov don and I special, specialized in neurophysiology. Um, I graduated from the uh, university with distinction and was invited to continue my work in neurophysiology at the um, kind of Russia's leading center for their discipline, the Pavlov Institute of Physiology in uh, Leningrad. So I worked there for three years, did my experiments etc etc but then I kind of lost interest in experimental science uh, for a variety of reasons and decided to move to more naturalistic work in biology so I did my master's at Leningrad University in ecology but soon thereafter I realized that it wasn't science experimental or otherwise, but just doing science in general in the Soviet Union, which did not appeal to me anymore. So I kind of quit academia altogether for a while. And then by almost pure accident, I discovered history of science, which appealed to me in many ways. So I did another PhD in um, History of uh, Biology at the Academy of Sciences, the Institute for the History of Science and Technology in Leningrad and um, defended a dissertation on uh, interrelations between the studies of animal behavior and animal evolution uh, in Russia in, uh, if I remember correctly, in 1990. That's when I kind of began working in the history of size proper. And since my first work in the history of uh, Russian biology, I got kind of interest in eugenics. Again, for a variety of reasons, and um, especially because at the time when I was studying In grad school, the history of science, um, what is called social history of science, was not a part of uh, what was expected of me. Um, Under the Soviets, the history of science was largely um, delimited to intellectual contents. And um, when I studied the history of Russian-slash-Soviet biology, I was struck by the absence of you know, important events in the general history of the country, ranging from you know, Bolshevik revolution, Civil War, Great Terror, to the Cold War, uh, in the work of my colleagues in this field. So, I kind of started to move into the social history and together with several um, graduate students who felt the same way, we tried to inaugurate the reintroduction of social and cultural uh, into our studies of science. And uh, since then, You know, all my work in the history of science was kind of motivated by this idea that we cannot understand the development of science in Russia or elsewhere without taking into account its social and cultural uh, surroundings on the one hand. And on the other hand, we cannot really understand what is going on in the general history of a country or general history of human race without taking into account science as part of that history. And um, that's basically my kind of general attitude towards uh, doing what I do, mainly writing about various episodes in the history of Russian and Soviet science. And uh, to a large degree, defined what I try to accomplish in my latest work on uh, eugenics in Russia. Oh,
1: thank you. Thank you. Uh... Yeah, it sounds kind of like a a bit of a Thomas Kuhn-type approach to the history of science.
2: No, no, not quite. quite. Thomas Kuhn was mostly interested, again, what happened to science uh, within science proper. What I'm more interested in is how, say, social and political developments in a particular locale find its ways or you know reflected or refracted in the content of science but also in its organization. Science is not simply a sum of knowledge we acquired up to a certain point or develop in various ways, it also a very important social institution with a variety of links and connections to other social institutions, be that religion, state, the church, or any other social bodies, you know, culture in general. Or you can say, you know, we can investigate the interrelations between say literature, fiction and science, or we can investigate how um, scientific development is affected by contemporary political or economic thinking, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'm interested in mostly is the multitude of connections by which not only content of science, scientific ideas, hypotheses, theories, experiments, but also Uh, specific ways of doing science, specific institutional arrangements, ways of funding, et cetera, et cetera, um, are reflected in what science is actually doing and what it actually does for us as, you know, members of particular societies.
1: Yeah. Uh, so with that with that kind of background uh, in in mind, I was wondering, you know, part of the part of the thrust of your book is that there really is no one thing that's eugenics. But for the uninitiated, I was wondering if you could kind of just lay out in in broad terms what you know people that have have thought of themselves as eugenicists have supported what kinds of things they've wanted to promote.
2: I see. well, you see, in my view, which is not shared by everyone who studies eugenics, eugenics was not one thing. It was a kind of beast with many faces, many bodies, and many different parts, uh, which uh, in different places kind of, developed into different beasts. And, um, since I was interested in particular and what was going on in Russia, I couldn't do much until I understand how say, eugenics was developed in various other places. So this idea of a comparative approach to whatever we study in our research is very important and i think you know with many other biologists i would say that without actual comparison of one particular species of a kind of be it eugenics physics or mathematics in specific locale we cannot understand fully what is going on um in um Each locale, you know, not to mention make some generalizations about some, you know, platonic physics or platonic mathematics or platonic eugenics. So when, you know, I speak to uh, sometimes my colleagues, sometimes to more general audiences uh, about my work, everybody kind of, thinks they know what eugenics is. But when you start asking them what do they think it was and uh, um, what they could expect when I would be, you know, explaining what happened in Russia with eugenics, all they could remember basically is two things. It's either sterilization laws and various abuses of that law In the United States, Germany, or Scandinavia, or on the other hand, Nazi uses of eugenics ideas and ideologies very popular in Germany under the name of Rassenhygiene as the foundation for Holocaust and uh, euthanasia and death camps, etc., etc. And when I say, well, what do you think would happen in, in, in Russia, particularly Bolshevik Russia? None of those ideas which underlied the actions of people call, who called themselves eugenicists in, say, United States, Norway, or Germany, would be condoned by the Bolsheviks, who claimed that they were building classless society, who were loudly anti-racist internationalist why would they support eugenics why would eugenics develop in, in this social uh, conditions and they would be at lost for words saying yeah well probably there wasn't any eugenics in russia i say no there was and uh, that's what makes it so interesting so after kind of reading quite extensive literature on the history of eugenics in Britain, United States, Germany, and many other places. You know, In the interwar period, eugenic societies were organized in more than 40 countries around the world, uh, from Japan to Norway and from Romania to the Kingdom of Serbs and Croats, so it was a kind of an international phenomenon. so, and Russia was just one of this many places in which this phenomenon was apparent. So trying to figure out what all those uh, multiple variations of what was called eugenics had in common, I Kind of come to, come to realization that uh, there is no single thing which makes eugenics, but usually it's a sort of an am- amalgam and a fusion of four different elements which are present in anything which calls itself eugenics and what later historians would identify as eugenics. So in my view, uh, the the most important among these four elements are the ideas about human reproduction and the correlated ideas of heredity, variability of um, humans as a species. So, um, if we look at at those ideas, it's understandable that, say, in the mid-19th century, when these eugenic ideas first were born, the acknowledged founding father of eugenics, whose name is on the title of my book, Francis Galton, a british polymath published his first article on what later 20 almost 20 years later he would name eugenics in 1865 and um he had very specific ideas about heredity which um you know differed considerably from the ideas about heredity which held by other um, proponents of the same ideas so the human reproduction and what kind of ideas underlie this and it's not only heredity it's also ideas about individual development how a particular organism develops how human organism develops not only as a biological organism but also as a social organism as a member of a particular society so um these ideas about human reproduction are not considered in themselves i would say they're always considered by eugenicists and and um uh people interested in these ideas as oriented to the future. this future orientation is extraordinarily important, and in my view, you know we, we should even consider eugenics as a science of the future because because it it, it thinks it tries to understand how our interventions in human reproduction could affect the future. So along with the ideas about heredity, variability, development, and evolution, characteristic of very specific locales and specific times where this uh, eugenic idea is developed. What also is very important is the actual social concerns certain problems which eugenic interventions in human reproduction should address these concerns of course again very different they perceived by different members of the same society different they perceived very differently in different societies And mostly what uh, these concerns are centered on is, again, the concerns about the future. What would happen if we say, do not intervene, do not do something? And, um, of course, these concerns are heavily influenced by concurrent values which are also very specific to particular societies and particular times and it is the kind of amalgams of this ideas concerns and values which together define eugenics as a body of ideas but eugenics is more than just a body of some ideas and concerns and values. It also includes very important part, namely actions, certain policies, certain measures. Again, all directed to human reproduction, human heredity, human variability and development. And of course, they are also very specific to specific societies. So, if we look at this kind of any specific place where eugenics uh, was articulated, we can kind of parse whatever is said about eugenics into these four big categories. Say, if we look at what uh, Galton himself said about eugenics, we can see that, you know, His eugenics, as articulated in his various writing, was very specific to late Victorian England. Uh, In Galton's writings, you can easily discern the specific notions of human reproduction because it is based on his personal anthropological, statistical, biological, Darwinian, notions of what heredity is, what variability is, what development and evolution is. And it is kind of fused with his personal value systems. You can clearly see the expression of his upper middle class, racist, imperialist, sexist, bourgeois, atheist, whatever you want to call it, value system. And the policy and actions he proposes for kind of furthering eugenics are also quite specific. He includes um, into his proposal the state regulation of marriage, stipends to various talented young people to support their procreation. He advocates for propaganda of eugenic ideas, which kind of would make this idea is a new religion, and uh, will somehow uplift what he calls human faculty of the British nation, and alleviate, you know, the social ills, as it was called at the time, such as, you know, criminality, pauperism, differential fecundity which were the concerns of his contemporary society. And it is all done in, in order to assure the survival, the future survival and future development of British nation. And of course, you know, as being such a local uh, particular uh, set of, ideas, values, and, and, and practices, and um, concerns, it found, eventually, not, not immediately, support and elicited, elicited criticism from individuals which also represented a very specific array of disciplines, professions, ideologies, occupations, all quite characteristic of late Victorian England. So when I realized that I could actually use this four part kind of analytical tool to figure out the specificity of what eugenics is in, in each particular locale, I th- kind of understood what was going on in Russia in in, in a very different way. And thus it provided me with the tool to kind of dissect uh, various pronouncements, statements, publications, policies, uh, which were adopted in the name of eugenics or were named eugenicists, uh, eugenics um, at the time. So that was kind of my original intention to see how these kind of four major components interact among each other, how they reflect uh, both scientific and um, social cir- circumstances of the particular um, locale and particular time in which eugenics uh, developed.
1: So, what is it that uh, that's specific to, to Russian conditions that, in in your view, that would make uh, somebody like Florensky then have, uh, you know, much less of a kind of hierarchical view of, of eugenics than somebody like Galton? Like, you know, what what are just some of the general you know, Russian uh, realities that that make it different there than, say, in England or the United States?
2: Well, that would depend first of all on the time which we will be discussing if if we talk about say mid nineteenth century when the first uh, Russian versions of what later would become called eugenics were articulated, and the example I'm using in my work is uh, the writings of a physician uh, Vasily Flarinsky, who published his first and the only large book on um, uh, what he called the generation and perfection of humankind in 1865, exactly at the same date when Galton published his first article on eugenics. Then we can talk about the specific differences between, say, the context of um uh, Victorian England and uh, mid-19th century Russia. If we were to compare, say, the rapid development of eugenics in the interwar years, then we would have to compare, the, say, the context of uh, United States or Britain or Germany with the context of the Soviets. Uh, russia, so let me start with the mid nineteenth century because many of the um, events and and developments of that period would be reflected later on in the development of eugenics in russia so to 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 begin with. You know, the British Empire in the mid-19th century and the Russian Empire of the same period are vastly different places. Economically, politically, socially, on every single level uh, of comparison, aside of the word empire attached to these two countries, are basically just two different animals. So. Let us start with, you know, kind of piece-by-piece piece analysis. Say, um, if we begin with eugen- comparing eugenic as, as a set of ideas about human uh, reproduction, human heredity, variability, and evolution. Of course, both Galton and Florinsky were deeply influenced by Darwin and Darwin's theory of uh, the origin of species. They took from Darwin a lot of ideas about how evolution proceeds, generally speaking. Darwin's identification of the major mechanisms, uh, he called it laws of evolution, uh, in natural selection, struggle for life and their uh, variability and heredity as the main conditions of such evolution deeply influenced both Galton and uh, Florinsky. Yet, even on the level of ideas, which are supposedly kind of international and travel throughout the world without much interference, we can discern certain specific differences. The differences derive, first of all, in um, from the different uh, professions. Galton started his medical career under the influence of his parents, who wanted him to kind of to continue in the footsteps of his illustrious grandfather, Erasmus Darwin. But as for his cousin, Charles Darwin, medical career did not appeal to young Galton. And he dropped the studies of medicine. He continued with the studies of mathematics. And his views of heredity and his views of variability and development were deeply influenced by his analysis and development of mathematical tools, namely statistics. In contrast, Florinsky kind of was born to a different milieu. He was born to Russian clergy, which for a long time served as a main reservoir for the uh, Russia's educated elites. So he graduated from um, a religious school and wanted to continue his career in the clergy but Just by accident, he was barred from entering the Theological Academy. So instead, he entered the medical school, and he did graduate. And furthermore, he got so interested and so involved with his uh, work as a physician that his teachers kind of slated him for a professorial position at his alma mater. So he not only became a physician, he also conducted considerable research, defended a dissertation for the doctor of medicine degree, went to a two-year-long study, kind of postdoc studies in the best clinics in Europe, and became not simply a practicing physician, but a professor of gynecology and obstetrics at his medical school. So his understanding of reproduction is much deeper and much more detailed in terms of actual knowledge of how reproduction works. Um, And thus, his understanding of heredity is much Kind of more sophisticated than any of the contemporary biologists. So that already creates certain differences between the conceptions of eugenics as developed by Galton and Flarinsky. But if we move further and start to compare, say, value sets, of Galton and, and Flarinsky. We see even bigger differences. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, for Galton, we can clearly see the values of upper middle class British gentlemen embedded in his conceptions. But Flarinsky came from a very different background, and he actually represented a very particular in many ways. A new and relatively small group in um, mid-nineteenth-century Russia. It was called uh literally "persons of various ranks," and it kind of identified a group of people who came from usually low-level social stratas and reason to uh, particular social positions becoming teachers, engineers, professionals. And um, their values are very markedly differ from mid-level or upper-level middle class in Britain. For them, you know, the ideas of even simple things like patriotism for many British um, educated elites of the time, the patriotism resided in the monarchy, in the personality of the queen, in in the empire as such. Empire kind of signifies for them what patria means. For Raznachincy, it is not the monarchy, even less the personality of a particular monarch, um, in this case Alexander II, and even less, you know, the, re- the religious unity of of um the land. It's the people. The people, you know, the Russian narod who Kind of embodies for this group what the actual patria means. And of course, the values which inform and embody this very different attitudes are not the same. If we look at the third element of what I would identify in eugenics the social concerns or, you know, the problems, the social problems which eugenics is supposed to address. We also can see very, very different social problems. If for Galton and many of his contemporaries, uh, one of the big social problems was, say, differential fecundity, of upper classes and the lower classes and what they perceive as the degeneration of the lower classes. Uh, For Russian intellectuals, this is not a problem at all. They do not perceive the lower classes in in their understanding, the people of their country as degenerating. To the contrary, What they see is the upper classes, the aristocracy, who is the degenerate. And and they believe that it is the people who kind of carry in in themselves the the seeds of the future. And thus, for them, it is kind of enabling the realization of the potentials which are hidden in the masses of the people, not the promulgation of special talents exhibited by, say, members of the cultural and the state elites as it is for the British. And you can understand that the set of actions the Russian eugenicists, will call them that, would propose would also dramatically differ from the set of actions proposed by, uh, say, British eugenicists. Not only because they identify different problems which need to be addressed, but also because their values are very different. So if we compare Say the set of policies which um, Galton advocates, with the set of policies which Florinsky proposes in his treatise, they look very different, too. So the, there are certain similarities, in, in that both Galton and Florinsky advocate propaganda of knowledge about human heredity, about human reproduction, so that people can make choices on their own. They do both share kind of deep respect for individual rights and um, individual freedoms. Nevertheless, Florinsky is probably the first to articulate quite clearly and succinctly the simple principle that it is the individuals who must make all the decisions they could be guided in their decisions by a physician who has much better knowledge of certain specific um details related to, say, hereditary diseases or some other things, but it is still the individuals that would make this decision. And thus, to explain what those decisions could be and should be is the kind of major task of, intellectuals of eugenicists who propagate these ideas. The same sort of analysis could be applied to the next time period, say, uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution, of course, the whole set of ideas, values, concerns, and actions Regarding human reproduction and evolution changes dramatically for a very simple reason that the science developed over the fifty plus years since mid 19th century. a mass of new knowledge about heredity in particular variability about reproduction has been accumulated so the very notion of what heredity is changes dramatically. But say we can again accept the notion that science is international, so everybody um, shares the same new ideas about heredity. For instance, what defined uh, many. Uh, Not all, but many eugenic movements in in many countries was uh, genetics as a discipline, which only emerged in the early 20th century. There was no genetics in the mid-19th century. So...
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent
2: off. At the level of ideas, say so the new understanding of heredity, Mendelism later on, Weismannism named after German um, scientist who did a lot of research on um, heredity, August we- Weismann, and uh, later on say, T.H. Morgan theory of uh, chromosomal heredity, all these new developments necessarily affected what people thought about eugenics. Yet, the perception of these ideas, even though we can say that they are universal truths because they are supported by Scientific experiments, etc, etc, the perception of this ideas varies and it varies dramatically, depending on specific cultural affinities, specific ways of teaching, and many other things so exactly at the same time when this new notion of heredity based on Mendelian genes and Uh, chromosomes comes to the fore as the explanation of heredity. Its incorporation with the ideas of evolution is much more problematic. Almost everywhere. In Britain, in the United States, in Russia, there are numerous competing theories, some of which incorporate this new heredity some of which are not. And thus, these different competing theories influence the set of ideas which would be absorbed into eugenics. The same goes for value system. I don't think we need to go into details how the value systems changed dramatically for many European countries after the First World War, which basically kind of demonstrated the impossibilities of continuing along the same path the war which was supposed to be you know to end all wars turned out to be a horrific catastrophe for the entire western civilization and that 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 feeling that war kind of put a stop on old way of thinking, on old way of living, was prevalent among the intellectuals of the entire world. We can look at the post-World War one literature ranging from, I don't know, Henri Barbus in, in, in France and uh, Ernest Hemingway in, in, in the United States and many other writers all over the world this feeling is ever present and of course this feeling is much more present in bolshevik russia which kind of emerged out of the horrors of world war one and through the bolshevik revolution claimed to kind of Depart from the old ways to to conduct the new experiment, the great experiment of building a new society, a new world, a new man, you know the new civilization, and of course, you know the system of values, the system of concerns which face this society is very much different from the set of values and the set of problems. Based by societies in other countries. Thus, we can see clearly that the set of actions which, say, Russian eugenicists would advocate during this time also differs dramatically from the set of actions advocated by their counterparts in Britain and Germany and the United States and Italy. Um, Many of their underlying ideas which kind of fuel the development of eugenics in various countries which emerged in Europe uh, after their first world war is very different. For many of those countries which emerged out of the ruins of Ottoman and Austro-Hungarian Empire the defining ideas were nation, nation building, nation state. That what kind of this all newborn countries from Poland, which emerged out of ruins of Russian empire or Baltic states as Estonia, nation became the unifying ideas. And of course, the... Mythology of blood and soil, as my colleagues call it, was very important for emerging of this new eugenic ideas in in places like Romania or Hungary. But um, in 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 Russia, nation is not a unifying ideas in Bolshevik Russia. Nation is not the idea which underlies the creation of the new state. It's the class. It's the proletariat, which by Marxian definition is international. The proletarians of all countries unite. That's the slogan of uh, Bolshevik revolution. So clearly the eugenics in, in Bolshevik Russia differs considerably there is no discussion of say sterilization laws which are very popular in the united states and various scandinavian countries say in norway or even newly formed finland but in russia with few exceptions few individuals who support sterilization The majority of people who identify themselves with eugenics, members of eugenic society, which was established in Russia in 1920. Sterilization is not the way to go. They're not interested in it because they think it's, uh, first of all, not sufficiently grounded in scientific knowledge. And secondly, even if, it is grounded in certain knowledge. It's completely insufficient to reach their proclaimed goal of, you, know, perfecting the human breed, or humankind. So they dispense with sterilization. They do not, you, know, cons- consider things like euthanasia at all, and they focus on things which would help. Uh, the new state and its populace to be healthy. Health emerges as the kind of unifying idea under all of eugenic proposals. The Bolsheviks do adopt certain laws, which at the time even called eugenic laws, But they look very, very different from what eugenic laws um, adopted by or proposed by Norwegian eugenicists or American eugenicists look like. They are completely out of the kind of mainstream eugenics at the time. They require uh, basically voluntary action on uh, the part of individuals they postulate that at the time of the registration of marriage the prospective couple should present a certificate that they informed each other of their medical histories thus kind of assuring the hereditary health of Individuals so of course, this kind of law is very difficult to enforce, and it is very difficult even to monitor. yet this is the kind of eugenic actions which the Bolshevik eugenicists advocate so and and we can look at at further history of eugenic ideas and proposals and compare in the same way what was kind of developed under the name of eugenics in in Russia in, say, 1990s and what was debated under the same rubric in, um, say, United States. We will also see this clear differences, and there are certain ideas, certain values, certain social concerns, and most importantly, certain actions and policies, which together form what we would call eugenics.
1: Do, uh, do you think that, uh, that you're talking about the, the emphasis on health, um... There, I was wondering if that's true of a project like Bogdanov's uh, blood transfusions. Does that does that project? Has kind of fit within that overall focus on healthy individuals, or is that project really something different?
2: <clears throat> it is um, different, and it is kind of similar, or. Um, a variety of reasons. It is different in, in the sense that it does not address the questions of human reproduction. It is not concerned with the progeny at all. Every eugenic concept, as we know them, is focused on reproduction and future generations. On the other hand, Bogdanov's general idea of using blood transfusions, well, not even transfusions, blood exchanges, is within the same milieu of kind of revolutionary experimentation which emerges in (laughs) in the early decades of the 20th century. I've dealt with Bogdanov in another book I published almost ten years ago, and I've kind of analyzed in detail what he wanted to do, what he actually did, and how it was perceived in various places and times. But generally speaking, uh Bogdanov's ideas lay within the same milieu of the ideas of Bolshevik creating new civilization, new life, new human beings, as it were. But since there are folk, his experiments are focusing on now, immediate kind of reorganization, they belong to a different, I would call it sub-trend, Uh, of biomedical experimentation of the time, which is not directly linked to eugenic ideas. Even though you can argue that certain ultimate goals of both Bogdanov and Russian eugenicists to a degree overlap, because both kind of think in terms of creating new men new future generations of men would, would be kind of appropriate to their social circumstances created by the Bolshevik revolution, the tools, the ideas, and concerns which underlie Bagdanov's project are very, very different. <laughs> the values are the same. But everything else is very, very different.
1: I was, uh, I was wondering too. I thought one of the more most interesting parts of your book was how you were observing that at the at the exact same time where we have this heavy emphasis on the new Soviet man and so on, kind of in the the pre World War Two era, like that's exactly the same time. When eugenics and genetics and so on got officially prescribed, I was wondering if you could, you know, comment briefly on on why you get that kind of unexpected prohibition on, on you know eugenic projects.
2: I don't think it's unexpected. I think it's quite predictable, actually, because you see, uh, the project of New Man, first of all, it it predates. The Bolshevik Revolution. It predates eugenics. It's a very old idea, and it's you know basically this the, the phrase "new man" uh, has no defined meaning. Its meaning changes dramatically depending on the context. We can see, you know, a huge debate about new man during. You know, the Reformation time in, in Europe, the religious Reformation. We can see a large debate on new man at the time of French Revolution. We can see the same sort of debate on new man during the mid-19th century Russia, during the period of so-called great reforms. So at each period, this phrase, new man, has very different meaning. So the components of that meaning are basically explained by the phrase itself, the two words, new and man. The new implies that time, that our understanding of what time is, is very important because you can't talk about something new if you don't know what the old was. And man, in that phrase, implies very um, kind of fundamental meaning of what we mean when we say man. What is the essence of man, as it were? And, of course, the ideas about what man is change dramatically. So what is happening in Russia is very interesting because up to 1930, eugenics and eugenicists use this language of creating new men, and it is accepted and supported by the Bolsheviks, by the leaders of Bolshevik Party, by various um, high-ranking Bolsheviks, which you know direct the ministries of bolshevik government say nikolai simashka who was the head of the ministry of public health <clears throat> anatoly lunacharsky who was the head of the education ministry there is a famous uh, work by leon trotsky the second in command in the bolshevik revolution who supports the idea that we now will create um a new higher social biological being, an ubermensch, if you will. That's his exact words. So and eugenicists kind of capitalize on this rhetoric, and um it's used very much in promoting both genetics and eugenics, in the Bolshevik Russia. What changes dramatically in the 1930s, actually it starts a little early and continues for a little longer, is a new revolution. Uh, As uh, my colleagues called it, the revolution from above. And that's uh, kind of a process of consolidation of um, Joseph Stalin's personal power over the party apparatus and the power of the apparatus over the nation, which leads to a dramatic reshaping of the entire economic, political, cultural landscape of Bolshevik Russia. It's not Bolshevik anymore because as part of that revolution, all the first generation Bolsheviks are replaced with Stalin's cronies, among many other things. And what happens at that moment is very interesting. The notion of what a human being is changes dramatically. If during the 20s, the 1920s, the notion of humans as biological beings, and social beings simultaneously was kind of dialectic, dialectically accepted. Indeed, one of the proponents of so called proletarian eugenics, who actually rediscovered Florinsky's treatise and republished it in 1926, even proposed that this new proletarian eugenics should be biosocial, that it should incorporate the notions of human beings as both biological and social organisms. After 1930s, this kind of dialectical unity of human beings gets torn apart. Stalin inaugurates kind of, you know, orthodox... Marxist approach to human history, which states, you know, if you take it literally, that humans are just the results of upbringing and economic circumstances under which they grow up. Thus, all the biology, which is kind of embedded in the notions of heredity, in the notion of uh, hereditary diseases or hereditary health, gets relegated to the second, if not third or fourth place. And it is the social being which becomes emphasized and kind of becomes the actual essence of humanity. Thus, the biological part became almost unmentionable. And that was one of the reasons that eugenics kind of disappeared in Russia after 1930. The biological part remains only as a very disciplined, very narrow understanding of hereditary diseases. Everything else, especially the future, of this human being is now exclusive prerogative of marxists to be more specific party ideologues and stalin personally thus the new man of the 1930s is not a biological creature at all it is a creature created by soviet Conditions, conditioned by the system of education, by the very uh, way this new organism develops in the completely new social circumstances, which, as you know, Stalin proclaimed, you know, socialism has been built by the mid 1930s. So the new men rhetoric, although On the surface, it looks the same, in actual fact, talks about very, very different things. And because Marxism is the only science, which, science in quotes, uh, which is allowed to elaborate anything on anything related to the future, any kind of biological or tinted by biology project of influencing that future becomes a heresy. It is only Marxism which defines the kind of progression of human history from slavery to feudalism to capitalism to imperialism to socialism and finally the final stage, the communism. That defines human future. We don't need biology to reach that future, according to Marxism. All we need is to change the relationships between productive forces and the means of production. This is one of the reasons eugenics and later genetics gets you know, bad reputation in, in the Soviet union in the 1930s and, and the 1940s. Well,
1: we got uh, enough time for kind of one more big question here. I was, uh, I was, as I was kind of sitting back after I finished reading the book and reflecting on it, I was, I was thinking about your material there on a uh, day of be at the, at the end of the book. yeah, And, uh, I was wondering. So, you've emphasized here how the the you know inherent importance of local context, local context, or, or national context. Um, do you do you see that changing in the in the future as the world gets more, uh, you know, it just as technology enables international science to get ever more international? Do you think that? That that's changing at all, or do you think that, like when Avdeev says things about eugenics now, that that's really particular to Russian conditions? Or um, does that does that make sense?
2: Um, you know, it's a it's a very big question, and it's been debated by many of my colleagues. Uh, I think that you know the, the actual globalization, as we understand it of technology, of science, is not as global as we perceive it to be to begin with for very simple reasons. As I've mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, science is a social institution which is deeply embedded in local conditions. It is kind of connected to local Patrons, local uh, trajectories, local traditions and genealogies, local ideologies and practitioners, and we can see even in our you know globalized world how different the science existence in different places could be, even at the level of. Uh, you know experiments which are allowed or not allowed in in different locales. You know, particularly pertinent, I think, to this is the attitude towards human experimentation. You know, certain experiments with you know genetic new technologies like CRISPR um, are allowed in, say, Indonesia, Malaysia, or China. And not allowed in the European Union or United States. I so, kind of had that
1: example in the back of my head when I, I was wondering if you'd
2: bring that up. But this is, you know, this is an obvious kind of reference. On the other hand, what uh, globalization can do is to kind of spread the mythology. Very rapidly, very fast, through the you know various uh, areas of the world, surrounding science and scientific experiments, um, you know, science become, becomes part of our everyday experience. We live in the world which is saturated by science. Which not the case, say a hundred years ago. You know, you open a newspaper, you you watch news, you you listen to radio, you always encounter a subsection, a section devoted to medical research, scientific research, you know, some exciting discoveries. The most recent, say the photograph of the black hole, which you know, was splashed all over media of all kinds. So this simple imagery is very helpful in one way in in spreading the knowledge about certain, say, natural phenomena. But at the same time, they propagate this very simplistic attitude towards what science is, what it does, and how it does it and it might be in some ways beneficial but in other ways as we know say from recent debates about genetically modified foods or continuing unending debates about vaccination the false information which is spreading through this you know global media is detrimental so, I don't know. It, it It is a double-edged sword in many ways. And um, I know that many scientists and my colleagues, historians of science, kind of try to counteract this kind of incorrect representation of Science, scientific discoveries, and scientific works—I'm not sure they are quite successful as the journalists who sens- sens- sensationalize science and 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 you know produce this innumerable descriptions of the latest breakthrough in cancer research or the latest breakthrough in this research. You know, the, and it doesn't actually inform the public of what is actually going on it propagates this very simplistic and in many ways i would say misleading notion of what science is how it works and what can we expect as it raises certain expectations among the people and among the reading public. And when those expectations do not materialize, it creates a backlash. Anti-scientistic sentiment. Now, in many ways, the kind of resistance to, say, vaccination is feeding on, on this sentiment. So, yes in some ways the scientific idea is universal they could be produced in one locale then kind of verified or as it as the case may be disproved by experiments done in other locales but the existence of science will always be local until we kind of evolve to eliminate those local differences which i think and i hope would never happen because the variability is a feature of life it's it what makes uh the survival of any biological organism or biological niche of biosphere in general possible
1: not to mention making travel pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> That's true too. Yeah. yeah, we're about out of time here. I, w- I wanted to ask you: Do you, do you have another? Uh, is there any other projects you're working on now that you're finished with this book that you'd want to comment about?
2: Um, yes, I have a few projects actually, which in many ways linked in in you know in in this and my previous projects. I'm really fascinated by the 1920s the period after the second after the first world war and this you know very short in in historical terms period between the two world wars I find it extraordinarily fascinating and particularly in Russia, because of the social revolution, because of the Bolshevik revolution, about you know, promises and possibilities uh, which the revolution opened. So I'm trying to kind of expand what I've done in my several previous works um, on on that period and look at other kind of, Research directions and agendas which were prominent during this time, including one of the subjects we touched upon in our previous um, conversation the new men. I actually uh, has organized a large conference on the new men in scientific and cultural experiments in Russia, which will happen. Uh, in just a few weeks, uh, in mid-May in Saint Petersburg, Russia, and uh, which will bring together specialists in cinema, literature, culture, arts, and science. And uh, we would like to discuss, you know, what the ideas of new men actually meant and how they were used by different groups in, in, in Russia from 1900s to the beginning of the Second World War. This is one of the you know, new projects I'm working on now. Another is very peculiar and also deriving from the same interests, and uh, that's uh, the study of telepathy in Bolshevik Russia. <laughs> I know it might come as a complete surprise, but during the early 1920s, Bolshevik Russia was one of the world leaders in scientific research on the questions of telepathy. I did and, not know that. Yes. and Very few people know about it at all because it seems completely counterintuitive. As How could you know, a subject so long shrouded in in, in the notions of uh, spirits, spiritualism, you know, communing with the dead, become the subject of research in Russia. But it did, and furthermore, it produced a very interesting sort of cultural response to this research. Uh at least four novels and several dozens of you know short stories which used this telepathy research as the major component of their plots were published during the nineteen twenties in Russia. Hmm. so what I want to kind of investigate in this new project is the interrelations again between the actual science which had been done at that time and how that science was refracted digested and presented in the literary productions which would also unpack you know how science is perceived by its contemporary society what kind of things the public if i may say so uh takes out from science what things fascinate people what things attract their attention and of course why it happens why it happens then and there and how so it it is you know very interesting material i've i've collected large um uh, amounts of archival documents and photographs and publications so i'm really looking forward to kind of digging out what what i can out of that uh very rich uh, material i've collected
1: well i'm looking forward to reading that that sounds like a really interesting project I think we'd probably better, uh, better call it, uh, call it quits here. So uh, thanks, thanks for your time, Professor Kremensov. That was a very interesting book. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate talking about it, even though you know it's been a while <laughs> uh, since I finished it. So. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.